It's the Stitch in Haste podcast. Commentary, rants, and rebuttals from the world's foremost gay, libertarian, econo-blogger. Recorded at the center of the universe, New York City. Law, politics, economics, religion, gay rights, foreign affairs, science, culture, humor, and, of course, Diamond the Dog. My name is Kip. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three. The topic this week is reflections on my travels to Las Vegas. I was visiting my parents in Nevada over Easter break, and I flew Continental out of Newark, and there were no issues. I checked in online, had my boarding pass. When I got to the gate with my boarding pass in hand, what did I discover but a classic, old-fashioned overbooking situation. I should begin, actually, by noting that some of you who are longtime readers may remember that I had written a blistering critique of Continental Airlines because of an incident that had happened when I was in West Palm Beach. But that was completely different because it involved first class. This was a classic economy overbooking situation. By the time I had gotten to the gate, they had already apparently been asking for volunteers for quite some time. The bidding had gotten up to, it was a $400 voucher and a guaranteed first class seat on the next flight, which was about eight hours later. But at the end, it turned out that they didn't actually need any volunteers or to or any involuntary bumps. There was a very last minute cancellation. Everybody got on. Overbooking is a, is a great hypothetical because it's like a quick test of economic theory. It's great for introductory economics courses to explain, for instance, the difference between price and value and the fact that all value is subjective, that all tastes and preferences are subjective. If you walk into a room filled with college freshmen or college sophomores and you say, what do you think of of overbooking? You explain what overbooking is. And first of all, a bunch will just say, oh, it's bad, it's terrible, it's greedy airline bastards doing what greedy capitalist bastards do, and it's horrible, and they shouldn't do it. But then you try to explain it to them, and you point out the fact that if you have a full plane, then the average cost of flying that plane, and remember, air travel has very high fixed costs. Having a full plane lowers the average cost, which therefore means that you can lower the price. Everyone who is on the plane benefits from having a fuller plane. person who gets bumped might not benefit from it, but the passengers and the system benefit by having the ability to charge lower prices. It also reflects overbooking, reflects the fact that airlines know their business. And they know that, as happened on this flight, in fact, that the probabilities are that when you sell 200, 250, 300 tickets on a flight, there are going to be, as a matter of probability, some last-minute cancellations. And they have analysts who study these data, analyze trends, and they can make pretty good predictions about who is going to cancel on what routes and what are the risks of of guessing wrong, which means that they have to bump. Overbooking, if done well, if done competently, can be a win-win-win situation for everybody. Now, let's assume that, as a hypothetical, that the airline screws up and they overbook and there aren't enough cancellations and they now have to get somebody off that plane because they have sold too many tickets. You then ask your, your room full of college freshmen, how do we decide who should be bumped? What will the test be? And you'll get all kinds of different answers, almost all of which 
are subjective. Subjective in terms of the student's preferences or their value judgments or their system of prioritization. Some people will say that it should be a FIFO system. The people who bought their tickets first should be the ones who should get to keep their seat. The last person to buy the ticket should be the one bumped. Or you could also say, which Continental tried to do in my first class fiasco back in West Palm Beach, you could do it by check-in. The last people to check in should be the ones who are bumped. Or you could say you do it by price. Whoever paid the least amount for the ticket should be the one to have to forfeit the ticket. And these are all subjective tests in the sense that they reflect the subjective value judgments of the person making the policy prescription. Well, I happen to think that FIFO makes sense. I happen to think that price makes sense. But there's no objective basis to legitimize that. The only objective standard to decide who is going to be bumped is the one, in fact, that the airlines use. What they'll do is they will find the person who is the most willing to be bumped, the person who is the least inconvenienced by being bumped. And they do that by the system that they use, the auction process. They, they start low and eventually they'll notch up with more and more incentives until they find someone who says, you know what, I'm actually made better off by this and I'll volunteer to get a $500 voucher and to get a first class seat on the next flight. That makes me better off. So everybody's better off. The airline is better off. The passengers who don't want to be bumped are not bumped. The person who is bumped is bumped because he volunteers to be bumped. So everybody's better off. But then you'll have people who say, oh, well, that's just the airlines being greedy capitalist bastards. That is a great litmus test to see who does and does not understand value theory. My next topic, which is related, I got to wondering, especially in the whole hullabaloo right now about investment banks and Bear Stearns and so forth, and it is related and I'll explain why. I wonder how many people are old enough, I'm not even really old enough, to remember the Civil Aeronautics Board and what air travel was like in the days before price deregulation of airlines. For those of you who don't remember the Civil Aeronautics Board, there was actually no real fundamental price competition or route competition. A federal bureaucracy controlled air travel and not controlled in the FAA or TSA sense. They set prices and they set routes and you couldn't undercut, you couldn't raise a fare, you couldn't lower a fare, you couldn't just randomly say, I'm going to introduce new service here, new service there. Everything had to be determined by the Civil Aeronautics Board. The result, of course, was that air travel was, number one, expensive, and number two, inefficient, because the airlines could not change their routes quickly. They couldn't change aircraft, fly bigger planes, fly lower planes. The hub-and-spoke system, which is another thing people love to damn, but it actually makes air travel much more efficient and therefore more profitable and therefore less expensive. The interesting fact about the Civil Air and Export, I have to backpedal, on the plane, there was actually a decent meal by airplane standards. And that, that was why I got to thinking about the Civil Aeronautics Board. Since the airlines back in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s couldn't compete on fare, they competed in every other way that they could. And one of the ways that they could compete was with their food service. And airline food got to the point where it was practically five-star dining because they would go out of their way to have the best possible meal that they could because that was the only way they were allowed to compete. Another way they were allowed to compete, and this is actually kind of funny in our enlightened 21st century non-stereotyping world, 
The other way they competed was with the stewardesses. And again, who is old enough to remember, I'm, I'm Kiparina, fly me. They were all hot and slender, and you, know, you couldn't possibly have a 50-year-old flight attendant or a slightly overweight flight attendant the way we do today because we think differently. But one of the ways you could compete was by having sexy stewardesses, and that's what they did. They had sexy stewardesses. And most people back then would have said, you know what, I'll be perfectly happy to not have gourmet dining, and I'd be perfectly happy to have a competent, if slightly zoftig, stewardess but could you lower the price? But of course you couldn't lower the price because the government said you could. How ironic is this, that all of this took place, this great revolution in airline regulation and deregulation happened in the Carter administration. Let me backpedal a little bit and, and point out that what a great time this was in libertarian thinking. You had for the first time in American history a, an economic regulatory bureaucracy just legislated out of existence. We were actually able to just scrap the Civil Aeronautics Board. It, no remnant of it really exists. A price regulatory regime was just scrapped. We did it another time in exactly the same framework with the Interstate Commerce Commission, which did the exact same thing for uh, freight regulation, roughly the same time, for roughly the same reasons. Of course, we still have Amtrak. Go to my blog and look up Amtrak. The other great federal rate regulation until very recently was, of course, in banking. Who remembers, again, who is old enough out there to remember bank toasters? This is a joke that is still bandied about, and I don't know if, if younger people even understand. Those of you who know the great scene from Boston Legal, there's this scene where Alan Shore is giving his closing in the ex-gay case, and he's railing against ex-gay therapies and so forth and gay discrimination. And at the very end, he says to the people who took the money to cure someone of their gayness, shame on you. Couldn't you have at least offered a money-back guarantee and thrown in a blender? And I wonder how many people are old enough to understand the reference to throw in a blender. Back in the bad old days, when retail banking was rate regulated, there was no competition on the interest rates that a bank could offer to depositors. For, and, and in fact, I wonder how many people remember this. Banks were prohibited by law from offering interest on checking accounts. You could put the money in a savings account, passbook savings account, and earn a little bit of interest, or you could put the money in a checking account, but you couldn't get any interest in the checking account. And then they kind of got around that with the now account. I wonder who was old enough to remember now accounts, negotiable order of withdrawal accounts, which was essentially a checking account, but technically it wasn't. And this is all long before the days of money markets and online banking. But it was the same situation with banks as it was with the airlines. The banks could not compete on, on the rates that they would offer their depositors. So they competed on everything else. They put up as many branches as they could so that they could compete on who had the more branches in the best areas. They competed on, on hours, who would be open on Saturday, who would stay open late on Thursdays and Fridays when people got their paychecks. And of course, the infamous toaster. Open up a new account and we'll give you a toaster open up a new account and we'll throw in a blender. Because, and, and literally, that's what they did. Because they could compete on who gave away the night, who had the nicest offerings for the opening of the account. But the one thing that people probably would have liked was, hey, 
Pay me four and a quarter percent instead of four percent. Pay me five percent instead of pay me four percent on my deposits. They were completely forbidden from doing that by federal law. Now, of course, we've gotten rid of that, which brings me into the other good litmus test for economic students and people in general. What is it with people who curse fee-based banking? Fee-based banking is great if you want to do it. We have competition now. There's two models of retail banking. The old model, which was called spread-based, which basically means we don't deal with fees and all that. We make money the old-fashioned way. We pay depositors a certain interest rate, and we charge borrowers a certain higher interest rate, and we get the spread. Now, of course, the, in that kind of a model, the bank is going to have to charge higher interest rates on the borrowers and offer lower interest rates to the depositors, but they can then say, well, hey, we don't have fees. So when they say they don't have fees, they're still making money. They're just making money in a different way. Then you have the other model, which is fee-based and say, yeah, we are going to charge you for an ATM fee. We are going to charge you to actually use a, a human being as a teller. Yes, we're going to have very steep return check fees and overdraft fees and so forth. But since we're making all this money on the fees, we can actually not focus, not rely on our spread business. So that means we can charge a little less to our borrowers. We can offer a little more interest to our depositors. We can shrink that spread, make mo less money that way, because we're going to make more money through the fees. And why some people insist that fee-based banking is some kind of horrible sin, I don't understand. You can choose which banking model is best for you. If you are not the kind of person who writes bad checks or who doesn't do a lot of online banking, then go for the fee-based because you're not going to be paying the fees because you don't commit any of these, uh, you, don't, you don't do perform any of these acts. If you're the kind who wants to use the ATM every other day and just take out $20, then go to a no-fee bank. But if you go to a no-fee bank, you're going to get less money on your, on your deposits or you're going to pay higher if you do the banking through them, if you borrow through them. You have competition. You have people can self-sort. Choose the kind of bank that they value. You don't have to have a politician saying, I think that everyone should be entitled to free ATM use, even in other people's banks, because I happen to think that ATMs are right. You know, let, let the banks sort it out and let the market sort itself out. This brings me to my last topic, which is not serious or it's not uh, political or economic. I, I really just do want to rant a little bit. One of the ways that I pass the time when I travel and I'm sitting on a plane and such is I download some gay podcasts that I don't normally listen to because I just don't have the time to listen to, to gay podcasts. But I'll, I'll load them up and listen to them on the plane. There's one that I had sworn that I would never listen to again because I had a bit of a bad incident. And I'm not going to mention who this blogger is. He has a blog and a podcast. But I thought, well, let me give this guy a second chance. Let me tell you this story. A couple of years ago, probably about two years ago, I subscribed to this guy's blog and he was just starting out with the podcasting. And he told this interesting story about how, through his own greed, he had tried to game the system in terms of depositing some, or writing some checks and thinking that he had time in terms of when the checks would clear, and they didn't, and a big check cleared very quickly, which caused all his little checks to bounce, and he got whacked with all kinds of banking fees, and he was crying poverty, 
and there was this big podcast, gay podcast meeting coming up in New York City. He was a New York podcaster. I was still kind of new at blogging, and I was very excited about all this. Unfortunately, I was going to be traveling, ironically, when this big get-together in a big gay bar in Midtown was going to happen. But the guy was on his blog, and he cried poverty. You know, now I'm broke, and the bank is after me, and I can't pay my electric bill, and so forth. My friends know that I'm not afraid to spend money on my friends. And this guy seemed like a nice guy. I had never met him. And he was asking for money. He said, please help me out. I need $50. If everybody could just sort of chip in $5, I can get the 50 I can pay back the bank fees. So I went on to PayPal, zapped him a quick 50 bucks. He acknowledged on his blog that he got bailed out. My least favorite word these days, bailed out. That he got bailed out by a blogger. Seemed to be very grateful, except for one little thing. Didn't mention me by name on his blog. Didn't link back to my blog. Just said, oh, a contributor bailed me out and thanks and so forth. And I got no recognition. Now, the interesting thing is, I wasn't necessarily looking for recognition, but I expected it. I mean, if I had wanted to be a, an Atlas Shrugged type, I could have said to him, I will give you $50 if you cite me on your blog, add me to your blog role, send people to my blog, I'll buy $50 worth of, of traffic from gay New York blog readers. But I didn't do that. I just said, hey, you seem like a nice guy. You got a good blog. Here's 50 bucks. And I got no recognition. Okay, I was a little bit perturbed by it. But then it got worse. This blogging event that I could not go to because I was traveling occurs. And he does a podcast about it, blogs about it. And then he says, and this was literally only like two or three weeks after I shot him the 50 bucks. He says in the podcast, well, the only problem we had was that because everybody was talking and chatting and nobody was drinking, the service folks, the bartenders, the waiters were kind of annoyed at us. And at the end, they came up to me and said, listen, you basically commandeered our entire bar or the entire second story of the bar and we've got like absolutely no tips because you guys weren't drinking at all and then he said so i reached into my pocket and gave the guy fifty dollars now we can debate the concept of the fungibility of money money is not fungible when you don't have it that was my 50 bucks that was my 50 bucks that i gave him to keep his blog going and i didn't give him fifty dollars which he didn't have so that he could you know shove it down the pants of some twink busboy at a gay bar in Midtown Manhattan. And I promptly unsubscribed to his blog, I unsubscribed to his podcast, and I became very bitter. And then a second incident happened that had absolutely nothing to do with this with another New York gay blogger who had another function and didn't specifically did not invite me, even though I was one of the earliest supporters of his blog. And that's why these days you don't see a lot of gay personal blogs on my blog roll. I'm telling you this story because I thought I'd give this guy another chance, downloaded his podcast, and I get on the plane, and I pull out my iPod, and I start listening to his podcast, and he says, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and by the way, I'm renovating my studio to do more podcasting, and it's going to cost me $500. So if people could shoot me money to subsidize the cost of renovating my studio, that would be really great, and I've got so many listeners, and if you all just gave $5, uh, it would be great, and, and if you don't give me $5, you're a cheapskate for not subsidizing my blog. You know, the people around me on the plane must have wondered, was I having a seizure or something? Because I just exploded into the most 
boisterous laughter. And the thing was, he had also said, I have never asked for money before, which was an absolute lie. He did ask for money before. I know because I gave him the money two years ago or however long it was. And I just exploded into laughter. So I'm not going to mention his name. If you know the gay podcasters in New York City, you know who I'm talking about. And I guess that's it. We will chat again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been the Stitch in Haste podcast. Thanks for listening. For more commentary, please visit my blog, A Stitch in Haste, at www.kipesquire.com. That's www.kipesquire.com. You can also email me at kipesquire at yahoo.com or leave me a voicemail at 646 646- Three eight six nine nine six four. Thanks for listening.